Hi, psychology nerds, and welcome to Why We Get Mad, a special series brought to you by the Psychology and Stuff podcast out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. I'm Ryan Martin, author of the book, Why We Get Mad, and I'm here without my usual co-host, but with my friend, Sammy Elger-Fieser. How's it going, Sammy? It's going great. How about you, Ryan? Oh, it's going really well. Are you, uh, what have you been up to lately? Anything good? Anything fun? It was the 4th uh, of July. I... Did you do fun stuff? Yes, I had the week off, actually, because it was been between terms one and two of summer school. So I was up north and enjoying that, but I was really bummed because I had to come home Sunday night before the fireworks so I could get to work on Monday morning. So I couldn't fall asleep because lots of fireworks in Green oh. Bay. So well, that was yeah, and, and that has been going on for weeks, frankly. People really, the 4th of July has turned into uh, the kind of holiday where you celebrate with fireworks for sort of 10 days surrounding it. It seems. leading up until and then the days after as well <laughs> yeah with all the extras yeah it's speaking of things that make people mad by the way I, I i see lots and lots of facebook rage about fourth of july fireworks uh happening pre and post fourth of july people want that to be a one night celebration i see well cool so well, that sounds... unless it's a weekend yeah well, cool. That sounds like you had a nice time. I uh, I spent the weekend at my in-laws just hanging out at the pool, which was uh, great. So, because it was really hot. So. Oh, yeah. It was a perfect weekend for 4th of July, I got to say. Yeah, that was nice. Well, good. So, I have a question for you. Oh, yeah? Um, I recently saw an article that was talking about uh, planes and passengers getting in uh, physical altercations with the crew members over wearing masks. Can you tell us more about this? Yes, this has been a hot, hot, hot topic lately because we're seeing lots and lots of really serious uh, altercations happening on airplanes uh, lately. Um, and more often than not, it seems like what initiates them is customers not wanting to wear masks. And so uh, we're seeing instances, I mean, I think the most extreme of which is that a flight attendant was punched and actually lost two teeth. Um, but in other instances, flight attendants have been grabbed, um, have had uh, bottles of uh, empty alcohol bottles thrown at them uh, and so on. Oh we'll, we'll, uh, yeah, I'll post the article along in the, with this in the show notes so people can see it. It's, it's really something. And so what a lot of people have been reaching out to me and asking me is, um, you know, what's going on? Why is this happening? And, and I actually think that there are a couple of different factors here. One is I think, um, you know, I think there is a lot of stress associated with A, flying, but B, also re-engaging in society right now. I think there's a lot of anxiety uh, for, for people and, and I think tensions are running high, including, um, you know, uh, when people are flying and that, that that tension, that stress is making people a little bit more likely to, to snap. Um, and when you add to it for many people, myself included, that they haven't flown for a long time. Um, and so that might also be exacerbating some of that. Um, I don't think that's the, the bulk of what's going on, but I do think that's a part of it, um, is that there's just a lot of tension and that tension is making people just uh, a little right. bit more likely to explode. I mean, when I, when I fly, every time I fly, I'm convinced that I'm going to die. I don't know why. I just, it terrifies me. And every time I'm fine, everything always goes smoothly. So I can completely you understand died yet? how, no, no, not yet. Okay, good. <laughs> Almost. But I can see how that would be a catalyst, but never in my life have I felt like throwing a bottle 
had quite a tendon over something I didn't agree with her on or him on. So what, what do you think is really causing people to go that extra mile to throw something or cause physical harm? And, and I do think, I think one of the things, and we've seen some research come out lately unrelated to flying, but linking entitlement to anger. And I do think that's, I mean, people who are more or who feel more entitled uh, are more likely to, to get angry. And so that undoubtedly probably there seems to drive some of this. There's a sense of, I shouldn't have to do this thing that you are making me do. And I, I am in entitled to break or violate these rules that you are asking me to follow. And, and I think that, you know, interestingly, I do think that the mask mandate has, has brought this out of people in ways that other things haven't, you know, that we're seeing, because we've seen a lot of what I call mask tantrums over the last, uh, over the last year and a half. And I think some of it's For driven sure. by that same anxiety. I think some of it's just driven by, I shouldn't have to follow this rule um, that that you have put in place, which is, I think, a little weird. And one of the things I was thinking about, or somebody actually commented on on TikTok, is, you know, airlines have all sorts of policies about safety, right? They have all sorts of rules about what you have to, uh, not necessarily what you have to wear, though some there, but what you have to what you have to do to board a plane. It's it's interesting and telling that this one seems to be driving so much anger for people. And I, I do think it has to do with sort of who people see as authority figures, what those authority figures are telling them. You know, they don't see the flight attendant as an authority figure saying you have to do this. And they don't trust the CDC saying you have to do mm -hmm. this. But they, they appear to believe some of the, the other leaders, uh, mostly conservative, who are saying, hey, you shouldn't have to do this. You shouldn't have to wear the mask. You shouldn't have to uh, to to uh, suffer this this sort of uh, attack on your freedom. Uh, all in quotes, you know. I think is what seems to be driving a lot of this. To your point, though, about you know, even still, I, I've never thought to throw a bottle of alcohol at a flight attendant or punch them or grab them in any way. Um, right. You know, so much of this is driven by people's beliefs about violence as a solution to problems in that there are very few circumstances where I would consider hitting a person in order to solve a problem. You know, but that's simply because I don't think that that's a reasonable or viable solution to problems. But some people do. And some people see that as a as a go to you know, as a, well, this is what you do when you don't get your way. And I think that's also sort of driving thing. I feel like that's very dangerous for a certain population of people, flight attendants, and then like receptionists, because I personally seen that I was at the doctor about maybe two, three months ago. And there was a man in the front of the line, there was like two or three of us standing in line waiting. And he was up there at the window. And he was just screaming at the receptionist about having to wear a mask. And then he would calm down and say, well, I know it's not really you that that makes this decision, but and then he'd get all riled up again. And he just sat there and yelled at her for like five minutes with us all standing behind him watching. And, and for what these uh, these people are just becoming society's punching bags simply because this group of people can't get at the people that are actually making the decisions. Right. Or they just simply could wear a mask. Right. Well, I, there is a really harrowing 
tale that I, I read or an article that I read about a, um, basically a, a woman wrote about her convenience store. And I couldn't tell from the article or my memory is, I can't remember if she owned it or if she um, uh, just, if she worked there, but regardless, there was a mask mm -hmm. requirement. This, this was a while ago. Um, it was a mask requirement. And she talked about the people who came in and how cruel they were to her. And just that it was like this day-to-day -day misery for her to the point that she, she wanted to quit. She couldn't afford to. Um, she, she was miserable. And ultimately, one of the, the solution they came up with was that they locked the front door and put a sign up that said, you can't come in unless you are wearing a mask. We will, we will, take, we will unlock the door for you once you put your mask on. And that that was the solution that they had to choose because otherwise she was just being inundated and, and ultimately felt unsafe. Um, because like you said, both I think metaphorical and literal punching bag, she felt like someone's gonna hurt me and I'm scared right. and so for my safety. And so she put up a sign that essentially said that and then stayed in a locked room. I mean, that's obviously not, not the kind of society we wanna live in, right? It's, no. that's, that's not good for That's anybody. terrible. Yeah, it's, I'll include the link, that link as well, if I can find it. it. It's been a little while, but it was the article that really, really, it just made me so sad to think about what people have to endure. Um, just, you know, just basically in order to do her job. And you're right, it's service workers across the, the, uh, the, the country, across the world have been dealing with versions of this, which is too bad. This is like the worst segue ever, but I feel like we should get to our guest and uh, and he is, he is a very, very nice man, not someone who would yell at a service employee. How's that for us? <laughs> into our fabulous guest. Thanks. Nailed it. All right. He's a professor of humanities, religion, and philosophy at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. He did both his BA and PhD at the University of Chicago. He's written books on St. John Paul II, Ethics and Torture, and Ethics and Solitary Confinement. His most recent book is America's Jail, the Search for Human Dignity in an Age of Mass Incarceration. He teaches courses on love, Thomas Aquinas, ethics and punishment, evil, Dante, Buddhism, and other topics. For more than a decade, he has been involved in jail and prison education, giving volunteer religion and philosophy lectures to inmates in Wisconsin's jails and prisons. It's Dr. Derek S. Jeffries. All right, Derek. So thank you so much for being here. I want to start, you know, you and I have had sort of passing conversations over the years where we have talked about uh, Buddhist perspectives of anger, um, but they've always been passing conversations. We've never really sat down and kind of chatted about it. And so I thought, let's do that right now. So why don't we just start there with that very vague prompt? Um, how do, what do we, what do Buddhists have to say about and how do they think about anger? Well, Ryan, thanks for inviting me because we have indeed had these, these passing comments and it's kind of nice that you thought of an opportunity for us to talk about it. I teach a Buddhist thinker. I teach a, a class on Buddhism. I've been doing so for over 20 years, every you know uh, other semester or so. And I teach a Buddhist thinker from the eighth century. His name is Shanti Deva. And he's really fascinating uh, thinker, an extraordinary thinker. And he has several chapters of his book on anger and he's very much actually opposed to it. It's one of the strongest anti-anger positions I think I've ever encountered. 
And so I teach this at, for our students at, at UB, and it's amazing how upset they get at the idea that they shouldn't be angry. And, uh, and I've also done this position not without the text, uh, without the text in uh, my classes to prison inmates and that and jail inmates. And that really gets interesting because many of them uh, suffer from diff difficulties with anger. Um, and many of them have a different perspective than our students do. So that's uh, really the context that what I've always wanted to talk to you about is that uh, this very strong position of anger from this particular uh, Buddhist thinker. Yeah, so let's, let's get into that. Kind of lay out to the best you can uh, the argument that he makes in, his, in, his, or in these chapters that sort of say we shouldn't get mad. Right. Well, it's a book on meditation. It's a very famous book on meditation that influenced um, the Dalai Lama and the, particularly the, the, the Tibetan Buddhist uh, tradition. And so it's an account of uh, meditation in general. But the chapters, the two chapters on anger, uh, particularly focus on this idea that we should not have this kind of uh, emotional state. It's just not a good idea. And um, a lot of this presupposes some Buddhist ideas, some uh, of the cosmos and reincarnation and things like that. But I think we can understand for him, it's not good for you. It sort of destroys any kind of spiritual progress you have made if you're, if you're meditating or praying or anything like that. If you're not meditating or praying, it kind of destroys that. And it's really bad for other people because it, it harms them. And it's very difficult once you've released anger to sort of take that back. Um, and so he's very strong about it. He says, it's just really not, uh, uh, other religious traditions may you know, be a little more open to this idea that people can get angry, but he says, no, uh, uh, do not do it. Um, so that's part of the, the, the position. And there's another chapter which uh, uh, expands on that concept and gives you some techniques it's very interesting ryan some techniques of how not to get angry because it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense right so okay i want to get to the techniques in a sure. in a second but first i want to i want to ask and maybe you know i don't know if he elaborates on this or if you could but so i've always considered anger a relatively normal response to having been wronged in some way like a person taking advantage of you a person um you know treating you unfairly and so forth. So do you think in his argument, I guess, do you, do you think that what he's saying is we should just accept that? Or is he saying, no, we should sort of let that dissipate quickly? How is, uh, that's the part I'm struggling with a little bit because I understand the rationale for try and find peace as quickly as you can and don't seek revenge. I can understand that perspective. It's harder for me to wrap my head around the idea that we just shouldn't get angry at all. Yeah, it is difficult to understand, but you're, you're right that anger initially starts as a response to a, a perception that I've been wronged. That's really sort of structure. The structure of anger is so important there, but it's also, it's our, our response that he really focuses on. And he does think, uh, because anger contains this idea that I ought to lash out at the other person or sort of pay back the other person or do something like that. And that's his focus is that we ought to, it's not that you don't respond to, to uh, if someone does wrong to you, you don't respond at all. That would, that would not really make sense. But it's that sort of 
pay, uh, Martha Nussbaum, who's a philosopher uh, at the University of Chicago, has this idea that there's a kind of payback mechanism in anger. And that's really what he focuses on, that that ought to dissipate. And hopefully it shouldn't start at all. I mean, this is it's kind of a, a really extreme position. But hopefully I perceive that somebody wrongs me and I, as I said, there are techniques where I can sort of deal with, deal with that perception of, of wrongness. So yeah, it should dissipate. That's really that's really the bottom line. You know, I want to I want to talk about at some point. I want to uh, talk a little bit about some of the different religious perspectives of revenge because that's something that's really been. As I was thinking about talking to you today, I was thinking about that. But first, tell me a little bit about some of the the strategies he describes uh, in his book for how to deal with anger when when angered. Yeah, they're really kind of uh, uh, wild in a way. And, and for me, some of them are problematic, let me be clear about this. But the one wants to see the other who's uh, wronged you, as you said, uh, uh, and, and sort of uh, no, don't see them as a threat anymore. And don't see them as, so uh, see them, he even says that you're kind of a bag of bones. It's really terrible, but you're really not this is not really a threat to me at all because so you want to find a way to, to see the other as, as something different. Um, many years ago, my, my father used to, I, I used to, uh, used to tell me that you know, when people get angry at you, just remember that the person puts his pants on the same way that you do. That, that kind of idea that the person should not, it's not really a threat to you. So a lot of this has to do with, uh, changing the way you perceive the other um, and that's and meditating on it that's the second chapter of this famous book the first is why anger is wrong but the second is a series of meditation techniques and some of them are a little impersonal that's that's problematic to me uh, they depersonalize the other I, I, I come from a different uh, religious tradition where we don't do that we don't and so but Buddhism is less concerned with that sort of depersonalizing situation. So it's a series of um, uh, uh, techniques like that. You know, in some ways that feels like what psychologists would call just cognitive therapy, yep. right? You know, I mean, ultimately it's, it's okay. We need to change our perception of, of this event. And which is, I mean, it, I mean, that's the, the theoretical orientation I, I sort of most uh, subscribe to, hmm. uh, ascribe to. Um, you know, I think my, what I oftentimes advocate with angry clients or just people more generally is, is not, is to, to, to ultimately have an accurate perception or representation of the world around us. Um, meaning that, you know, this person may not be a threat to me, but they might also be a threat to me, right? I mean, they, they might have potentially have power over me. They might be a danger to me in some way. Um, and that, and so I, I think like in some way, and in that sense, there are times, I guess, where I feel like it's not just my perception that is leading to anger. It's, it's a realistic response to unfair treatment or this, this negative situation. And that I've got to find ways to, to kind of cope with that or even channel that into problem solving or positive pro-social outcomes somehow. Your, your point about, if I may, your point about cognitive therapy is quite interesting because a lot of people in cognitive behavioral therapy are interested in Buddhism. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of interesting connections between those two. 
Um, but I think Shantideva would say that you can analyze a threat as realistic. I mean, I don't, I don't want somebody to kill me or harm my kids without that second response or anger. Interesting. So, you know, I can do that without that. And that's what, when I do this with uh, students at GB, but also particularly in the prison system, that's a, an issue that a lot of people uh, have difficulty understanding how, how you could do that. Yeah. Let's talk about that for a little bit, because you've told me a couple of times your students, uh, you mentioned it today and then in, in previous conversations that your students get angry over the idea that they shouldn't be angry. And so I'm, I, I want to hear more about how they react to this article. Yeah, this chapter. Uh, they, uh, I mean, they've never heard of such a position before, uh, and they tend to think that anger is an evolutionary necessity or uh, they just can't. And so they get quite more papers are written on this topic in my Buddhism classes than almost any other topic. It's quite interesting. Uh, I have students write a paper at the end of the course and more, more and more uh, on this particular topic. So it's intriguing to me that that's something that people feel very upset about. Um, you know, and, I mean, I'm getting upset about anger. In the jail and prison system, I, it's quite interesting to me because uh, you know, there are lots of people there who are not thoughtful at all, but the, 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 some of the men I meet are quite uh, troubled by this because of their own lives, that they've had moments of anger that have led to life imprisonment, yeah. uh, uh, or they have an anger problem. Domestic, we get a lot of people in our jail who are, have domestic violence issues. So when they confront this, they seem to be a little bit more open uh, to the idea, Shanti Diva's ideas, so our, our students are at GB are of different ages. And so right. sometimes you get an older student who also shows a certain kind of wisdom. It's usually the younger students, I think, the 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds who get really upset about this. You know, what's really, so I'm, I'm really fascinated by all of this. And, and part of the reason is, so one of the reasons I got interested in studying anger in the first place was because I, I worked at a shelter for, I'm putting this in quotes, but for at-risk adolescents uh, in, in the Twin Cities. These were kids who had been having, struggled with the legal system. They'd struggled with foster care placements. They, there was a host of reasons why they might be staying at this shelter. And um, one of the things that I, I noticed is how many of them struggled with anger problems yeah. that, and angry outbursts. And, and they did. And that's, I, I would stand by that. But I would also acknowledge that one of the things I learned sort of over the time and working with them and then later on is just how unfairly most of these kids had been treated in their lives. Um, how unfairly they had, um, uh, you know, that, that whether it was poverty, whether it was uh, educational system, whether it was uh, a family home life situation, these kids had endured a great deal of unfairness and a great deal of injustice. And, and ultimately, even though their anger was a problem for them, controlling it in a lot of ways, they had a lot to be angry about. Yeah. And, and so I'm thinking about that in terms of, I don't want to assume that of the, the prisoners that you've worked with, but I also imagine that, that there are people in that system that have a lot to be angry about. Yeah, that's entirely correct. No, and I, it's a mixture. Some people have anger problems uh, and they don't, you know, they're just angry people. But no, I think there are people who really do have 
many reasons to, to be angry. And uh, they do, uh, yeah, I mean, particularly over at the Green Bay Correctional Institution where I uh, spend time uh, teaching, we have a lot of men there who uh, have many, many reasons uh, to be angry. Many times they don't even know. Uh, it's so deep, they're not even sure where it comes from. Right. Uh, so that's, that's definitely the case. So I want to broaden this out a little bit to and ask what is in some ways a totally unfair question, especially at the time we have. But um, when we think about just different major religious perspectives on anger, what do you see as some of the differences uh, across some of the, the major religions when it comes to how uh, they when it comes to the messages implicit and explicit about anger? Yeah, well, this, uh, the reason I started reading this Buddhist thinker was with my teacher at the University of Chicago and mentor, because he's a, a, a both a scholar of both uh, Christianity and, is, and Buddhism. And it was part of a group of Christians reading uh, Buddhist scriptures and vice versa. So we wanted to, you know, get at each other's points of view. And this often comes up with the students as well, uh, particularly the strongly religious students in, in my class. So um, Judaism, you know, you have a, a lot of texts in the Hebrew scriptures that deal with anger. And the anger of God is particularly one that many of the students raise explicit text about God is angry. And then you have different characters in the Hebrew scriptures that are angry. So the Jewish tradition, you know, it's a very complex tradition, so I don't want to speak too much for, uh, for, for the, te- I'm not a Jew, so I don't want to speak for that tradition, but it has to deal with those texts where God is angry and individuals are angry. So it doesn't take this very strong position that Shanti Deva takes. It does take the idea that anger might be problematic and you have to figure these things out. Um, but those texts also are read in many different ways. You know, when you say God is angry, uh, it's not literal. I mean, it just means something has displeased is displeasing to the idea of God. So there's lots of ways to read religious texts to deal with those kinds of issues. Um, now, Christianity is a different story. Uh, there's one text that often comes up with uh, our students, and that is Jesus getting angry in the temple. He goes into the temple and smashes things up. So, so students are immediately say, Jesus gets angry, so why shouldn't we get angry? <laughs> you know. But that's the only text where he, he really displays that kind of, I mean, he has strong statements at different parts of the gospel. Um, but St. Paul, um, uh, who wrote a lot of the New Testament, there's, there's text, very explicit text where he says, do not get angry. Um, so Christianity has, a, a, has a, an issue here because uh, Jesus does have a, a kind of emphasis on the eternal life and um, so uh, that's quite complex. I think traditionally it has not also not taken this kind of strong position. You mentioned revenge. That's a different thing. Revenge is not a good thing. But anger per se, you're not going to find uh, the very strong statements that you'll find in, in the Buddhist tradition. I think we can learn from Buddhism, honestly. I think those in other religious traditions might you know, be able to learn something from uh, those uh, traditions. It's one of the advantages of people reading each other's texts. You can learn from each other. Is it fair to to say that um, my understanding of Eastern religions, and I should preface this by saying that I uh, 
you, it would be, you'd be hard pressed to find someone who knows less about religious studies than I do. Um, I mean, I just, uh, I was not raised in a religious household. And so my experience is a, a couple of classes I took in college sure. 20 plus years ago. So, uh, so it's been a while. Um, but my understanding of Eastern religions is that there is oftentimes maybe more of an internal focus on peace um, uh, and focus on things like enlightenment and calmness. When I think about yoga and perspective and things like that, you know, coming from those religions, it does feel like there's a real drive towards sort of internal or what as a psychologist I would think of as sort of this, this state of mental peace. Is, is that a fair description? Yeah, I mean, I think um, we have to be careful with certain stereotypes we have of, of Eastern religions. We often have certain ideas in the Western world about these traditions. When one says Eastern, I mean, it's huge. <laughs> right. Uh, Hinduism, millions upon millions of people with a very long uh, uh, intellectual tradition. Buddhism is explicitly focused on peace because that's what nirvana, the end of human life, is ultimate peace. That's what we mean by nirvana. So Buddhism is going to be focused very heavily on those internal states of, of, of peace. So uh, yes, I mean, I think those things are, are quite significant. It is too bad, I think, that uh, uh, because there's a long tradition in Christianity and also Judaism of this kind of internal element, we kind of lost that I think, in our society. And so we don't, um, many people are trying to retrieve it, um, but that's quite significant. So, yeah, I, th I, I mean, I, I guess I would be uh, somewhat comfortable with that generalization, uh, but one has to be careful with it. Well, yeah, and I'm just thinking about how often it, you know, as, as sort of a, what I might describe myself as a religious outsider in the sense that I haven't, you know, I, I'm, I sort of bear witness to, to religion more so than, than I, uh, engage in it, it does feel that um, kind of for many people that I see, it feels like Christianity is oftentimes sort of feels like a, a list of rules on how to behave. You know, that there, is a, it, that there are things that we should or shouldn't do. Um, and that that is how, you know, again, as an outsider, my perception of, of, of it is versus uh, a way of sort of how to be or how to think or how to exist in the world. And um, and it does, you know, when you talk about peace and you talk about enlightenment, I can see that being something I, I personally am much more comfortable with, that this idea of, you know, sort of, okay, how can I, on some level, how should I feel or what should I be trying to obtain from a, from a thought and feeling perspective? Yeah, I think I would be a little resistant to that uh, contrast, to be honest, I think. Uh, there are lots of rules in both uh, okay. worlds. Uh, uh, and I think, as I said, I think Christianity has a huge emphasis on the internal life. But, I, you know, there are Christians who just don't know about that. I mean, right. you know, like our, our students often have no conception of the history of the contemplative life. And so I try to, you know, let them understand something about that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think I would be, I would resist that uh, kind of uh, okay. contrast, if I, if I may say so. Um, yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, that's why I wanted to talk about it. Um, and that's what I mean about being sort of the perception of an outsider, um, you know, someone in sort of like what I, what I witness, which is obviously very limited uh, to things. Oh. Um, because one, one of the things that I'm often 
sort of aware of is that when I, again, this is perception is like, and one of the questions I mentioned this morning is sort of the, the explicit teachings about anger that might be in the Bible versus some implicit messages. And you describe some of those, right? So we've got, you know, don't be angry versus the, this description of Jesus being angry and being upset. Um, certainly there are some areas where there are descriptions of God as a vengeful God, yep. uh, whether or not that vengeance is motivated by anger or, or like you said before, maybe a, a metaphor not to be taken literal. I think those are fair those are kind of questions I have about how, what are the messages that people take from, from these teachings um, and how yeah. do they play themselves? I think part of the issue is how people read the Bible. I mean, a lot of people today read the Bible literally, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's uh, word for word. If it says it, God is angry and God must be angry. Right. Uh, and that's not historically how people, that's a relatively new uh, kind of reading. It's always been there. But a couple of centuries after the beginning of Christianity, and certainly in Judaism as well, people recognized that that kind of reading leads to problems. You know, you, you uh, and a lot of you know, their students, our students are not the first people to realize that if you read the, the text literally, you're going to run into all kinds of problems. And so the historical traditions, as you said, metaphors are uh, important. This might be a metaphor, this might be, and so very sophisticated kinds of readings have occurred uh, over the centuries. Um, but recently, the last 200 years, people have gone to this literal, very complex historical reasons, this literal reading, and it makes people feel safer, perhaps. I don't really know. But this is a constant discussion with students at GB uh, who uh, are literalist, and I'm not. So we have right. been an interesting debate. Oh, that's fascinating. So I would have... I certainly was aware that there are sort of differences in like kind of literal interpretations versus other interpretations. I guess I did not know though, that that was a, a relatively recent development that yeah. I, I think I would have assumed the opposite, that, no. that it was a literal interpretation for a long time and then it wasn't anymore. No, but, not at all. In fact, huh. this was something that people are also often surprised, particularly students who are particularly religious. No, it's quite the opposite. Hmm. Uh, literalism has always been there, but some of the great, minds like St. Augustine or Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages, they would say, um, that's for uh, the uninitiated to some extent. The literal is not, not this, it's called a sense, the literal sense of the text. So if you, if you say God is angry, then uh, Thomas Aquinas would say, that can't really be true because God doesn't have those kinds of emotions. Um, and so that's a signal to you as a reader to interpret it in some other way. So yeah. This is a, a, a long centuries of reading the book that way. Oh, that is fascinating. I have learned a lot today, Derek. So as we finish up, what do you think would be, um, what's a, sort of a take home? What do you want to make sure that, whether we've talked about it or we haven't talked about it, that you communicate to our listeners about this? Well, I just think uh, anger is, is problematized. It's one of these things I would think we want to consider. The Buddhist tradition has this very almost absolutist view, at least in a thinker like Shantideva. But in, in the other traditions, Christianity and Judaism, it's not so you know, absolute like that. But either way, I think anger can be problematic for reasons of both internal peace, but also what it does to other people. And I understand that anger 
you know, it can be a kind of self-defense mechanism or it can be an assertion of one's own self-respect or it can be a signal that um, there's social injustice. You mentioned your experiences in Minnesota. And this is, people have been uh, wronged. They let us know that. And so all that's good, but ultimately for a lot of these more sophisticated thinkers, that's not really going to be a, a positive. It seems like a positive initially. One gets angry, I'm defending myself. And, but ultimately it has too many negative consequences for the internal life and also for um, other people. So that's what I think is helpful in thinking about anger uh, along these lines. That is a perfect way to finish up, Derek. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Ryan. Appreciate the conversation. All right, now it is time for us to take a question from TikTok. Let's so do it. Our question today is, can you talk about the relationship between anger and sadness? I would be happy to. Yeah, I've been getting this question a bunch uh, from people. And, you know, the first thing to note is that all, all emotions are going to be linked. We tend to talk about these things as though they're in vacuums and like they're separate, like that anger is separate from fear, is separate from sadness, is separate even from happiness. But they aren't like they're, they're linked. We feel lots of things at the same time. And anger and sadness, you know, definitely share some, some common elements. Now, not necessarily the way your body feels when you are angry and sad, though sometimes, you know, people who are really intensely sad will actually see some cardiovascular increases uh, in the same way they might with fear or anger, but more in some of the thoughts we have that lead to both feeling states, both sadness and anger. And, you know, some of it might be a little bit of catastrophizing, you know, thinking about like, what is this, this negative outcome going to mean uh, going forward? You know, this, this bad thing that's happened, how bad is it? And so that might be relevant. But I think honestly, the, the biggest piece here is um, helplessness, that both emotions oftentimes include a sense of helplessness, a sense of powerlessness, like this bad thing has happened. I want to... I want it to be different and I don't know how to get there. And I think that can be relevant to both sadness and anger um, in ways that really kind of essentially drive those negative feeling states and mean that people sometimes feel both of them at the same time. I think it's also worth noting too that, that sometimes people essentially reframe in their minds a situation so that it makes them angry instead of sad. Because, you know, when a bad thing happens, you can be, you know, it, it, when you lose someone, you can really focus on the loss, which is going to make you sad. Or you can focus on the, the person or thing that, that took the person from you, right? And so instead of focusing on the, the, the loss and the sadness and the grief, people end up focusing more on the the, the cancer or the illness or the circumstances that that took that person from them. Um, it's the same thing. Like, you know, if you if 